0: We had a fabulous easter sunday two weeks ago and then brad brought the word last week to us uh, easter sunday was amazing it felt like man we're close to back to normal again and uh, just so great to to be together here so many good things that are happening in the context of our church we closed the financial year on march 31st and we've issued an annual report so if you'd like to see just kind of taking a historical look of what did god do uh, in our church over the last year uh, you can uh, visit that annual, get that annual report, visit our website, you can see that information. There's even a little section there about our sister Veda, a church member that passed away who so wonderfully said amen and praised the Lord all the time. We miss her, but know she's saying that today in the presence of Jesus. And so thankful for um, her and so many others who uh, are part of our church family, some who are not with us anymore. And thankful that you're here today as well and ask you to take your Bibles and let's go to James four, eleven to 17, where... We're looking at the matter of wisdoms, wisdom and warnings, putting two ideas together in James four and five, how James as a book gives us a, a path to follow in terms of advice, how to live wisely, and then also James issues some substantial warnings about living in a world that's filled with evil and how that evil can even get inside of us. It's one of the many reasons that we love the book of James. I trust that you, like me, have fallen in love with this book. I knew James was amazing before, but walking through it as we have verse by verse, line by line, it's been just remarkable to see how incredibly practical this book is. I mean, James is a, it's a punchy book. It gets in your grill. It's, it's convicting and incredibly practical. Our text today in verses 11 to 17 returns to a subject that James has talked about before and that is in regards to the use of our words. James has talked about this multiple times throughout the book, and the reason that he's talking about this is because James has written to a group of people who are experiencing hardship and difficulties. They're they're under pressure, and James knows what you know, and that is this, when pressure comes on us, we have things that are squeezed out of us, and often that happens by virtue of what we say. I'm sure that you could look back on the last year or so of your life in particular and can resonate with how hardship or difficulty surfaced some things that you said that you wish you could take back. The reality is is that suffering tends to reveal things that are there inside of us. For those of you who've been around College Park for a while, you may remember that I've used an illustration before that I heard John Piper give about 15 years ago where he describes um, Christians like a beaker. And our lives are kind of this solution that looks really pure, but underneath and inside the beaker, uh, inside the beaker rather, is a sediment that is settled, and when the beaker remains on the shelf, everything looks good. But when the beaker gets bumped, the sediment now infiltrates the, the liquid, and suddenly now it looks really dirty. And that's really a good image of what our lives can look like, like underneath our lives is this sediment of self-centeredness and all sorts of other things in our lives. And then when hardship comes, it, it it surfaces these challenges, these issues that were there all along. So it bumps the beaker. Well, in January of 2020, I gave all of our staff their own little mini beaker. This is just a vial, if you will. We took some vegetable oil and put it in there along with some food coloring, and I invited them during a prayer time to put this on their shelf and to be reminded regularly throughout 2020 that when God bumps the beaker, he intends good things for us. Little did I know the kind of bump we would have in 2020. In fact, some of our staff said, I need a bigger beaker, right? And I'm sure that you resonate with that as well. 2020 has been a year of constant bumping of our beakers. Our text today addresses two particular issues, and that is the matter of evil words and presumptuous words. James says, watch what you say. And in the context of suffering, when our beakers get bumped, evil words or presumptuous words can come out. So today I wanna look at this text through those two particular categories, evil words and presumptuous words. First, evil words. Hardship, can cause us to say things that are awful. You know that. We know that we shouldn't say certain things, but the pressure, the frustration, the anger, the vulnerability that we feel, the words come out. They were there all along, but the pressure of circumstances creates them. In chapter 1 and verse 26, James has already told us about the matter of Our words, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So James draws a straight line between what you believe and how it expresses itself in your words. In chapter 3 and verse 6, he says the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. So James is saying our words are serious. Chapter four and verse one, he speaks to the internal conflict that can happen in the church. He says, what causes what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's trying to get to the motivational issue. What's underneath all of the conflict that so happens with people who should know better and who claim to love the same Savior and are supposed to be part of the same family? What James is concerned about now is moving from motivations to manifestations so how does how does this show up specifically he addresses evil speaking so let me just address two questions first what is evil speaking and secondly why is it sinful so the the challenge is is that there's no one who's going to hear this message that would think that evil speaking is okay to do so The challenge is, what exactly is evil speaking? What what exactly do we mean? Verse 11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So he says, do not speak evil against one another. That word, or those two words, speak evil, is the combination of two words. It's the word for speak and the word for against. So to speak evil is to speak against someone. It's to speak in a way to oppose someone. Or another way to translate that word is to speak contrary to. So the ESV, the translation that I'm using, translates that Greek word as evil speaking. Other translations, like the NIV, render it as slander. Or the CSB renders it as criticize. So what is this? Well, commentators tell us that this is the kind of speaking that comes with malicious intent. It's the kind of speaking that intends to harm others, or as we'll see in a moment, that intends to exalt myself over others. We need to be clear that just talking about things that somebody has done or who they are in an honest way isn't wrong, but it can be wrong depending on the motivation and how it is that you do it. So to be evil speaking of someone is to sort of traffic in false accusations. It's where we attempt to attack the name or reputation of someone. And sadly, the story of humanity and even the story in the Bible is filled with evil speaking. It's all over the place. In fact, you know that the first temptation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three involved Satan speaking evil about God. Like right in the beginning of the Bible, we have slander that's happening. Satan slanders God. He says to Eve, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He uses a partial truth in order to cause Eve to be tempted to question God's goodness. And friends, that's what evil speaking, when it comes from our mouth, that's what we do. We say things that cause suspicion with others. And we do it because we want superiority. In Numbers 21, verse 5, the people of Israel speak against Moses and against the Lord when they are tired of manna and they found themselves hungry. They they speak against Moses. They say, you brought us out here to kill us because they're sick of manna and their bellies are hungry and it's remarkable how quickly us human beings can turn on people around us just because our needs aren't met. It's amazing how quickly we can blame others, especially people in authority, if you would have done this differently, then our life would be better. We've done that from the beginning of time. The psalmist in Psalm 101, verse 5, sings about God's destruction of those who slander in secret. Can you imagine that? Writing a song where we're singing about God destroying those who slander in secret. First Peter 2 anticipates the world slandering Christians, and that's why Christians are commanded to keep your conduct honorable slander makes the list in Romans chapter one and verse 30 of the things that characterize our collective rebellion against God and when Paul writes to the church at Corinth about all of the things that are just really messed up in their church including quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and gossip and conceit and disorder slander also makes the list So a survey of the Bible and a right understanding of humanity, and quite frankly, a right understanding of the way that church people rule, because we're just ordinary people who've experienced the grace of Christ, but we're still wicked sinners, and pressure can surface these things. All of that would simply show us that evil speaking is a part of the world in which we live, sadly, even after we come to Christ. Doug Moo, commentator on James, says this, James is referring here to personal attacks and slanderous accusations, the kind of, listen to this, inner church debates that too often degenerate into name-calling and even questioning of another's Christian convictions. If you've been around church world, you know this happens all the time. I'm sure you know what this looks like. I know what this looks like. I'm sure you've participated in it at some level. I've participated in some level. So mad, so ticked off, so afraid, whatever it is, boom. We create labels, call people names. Sometimes in theological categories, we put them in them. We make suggestions, cast doubts on the motivations of others. We're pretty skilled at times about relaying information, even true information, that's designed to hurt people. The Bible calls it evil speaking. Now, why is it sinful? That's the second question. Because it doesn't mean that we never talk about negative things or that we aren't honest about when something bad is happening. Doesn't mean that every controversy is necessarily sinful. But what it means is that our posture in talking about people is not coming from a place of pride or a place of judgment. That's the key. And that's why it makes it so hard and so difficult. Evil speaking puts us in a position that we're not supposed to have. Here's a quote by a man named James Denny. He says, the natural man loves to find fault. It gives him at the cheapest rate the comfortable feeling of superiority. That's a really important statement. The superiority is underneath it. That's the key. So one of the ways that you could be helped even today by this message is just by leaving here today and going in the course of your life the next week, if you're a Christian, realizing that just to think about what you say and where you're positioning yourself in the conversation would get you halfway there towards understanding what this text has in mind because so often the problem with our evil speaking is we are positioning ourselves in a moment of superiority and we're just talking about other people and we don't even stop to think whoa time out why am I talking like this we don't even think about the words that are coming out of our mouth James then goes on, he says, the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So James, writing to a Jewish audience, takes the law and uses it as a reference point here because for the Old Testament Jew and even those to whom James was writing, the law wasn't just regarded as the rules that God gives, the law was regarded as rightly what is true and correct and as God's revelation. So think of the law as the standard of what is right and wrong. And so when we speak evil about another, James says that we're judging a brother, we're speaking against and judging the law. What does that mean? It means that when, when, when you speak in a way that is evil, you are engaging in a condemnation that can only come from the law. Or, to think of it this way, the evil speaker becomes his or her own law. Secondly, James says that in judging the law this way, you are no longer a doer of it. So you take on a role that isn't right. You, when you speak evil, you act as if you're above the law. So it's not only a problem that you become your own law, but then you position yourself sort of above the law. And third, verse 12 points to the fact that there's only one lawgiver. It's God. He alone has the power to save and to destroy. And so therefore to speak evil about your brother is to take on the role of God. That's why James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? So it's almost as though when we engage in evil speaking, we lose our minds or we lose, maybe a better way to say it, our theological and biblical footing. We begin to think in a way that just isn't right. And it happens so fast. Here's a longer quote from a commentator named Kurt Richardson. He says this, In slandering another, believers slander the law of God. When believers judge another, they judge God's law. Believers should accept the law of God, but this law requires them to exercise mercy toward others since they have received mercy and are putting their hopes on the mercy of God. Slander, then, offends not only the brother and constitutes judgment against him, but also offends the law and constitutes judgment against it. In both cases, the slanderers have placed themselves in a superior position. This last sentence is why I have this quotation. They are putting themselves in the place of God whose mercy they themselves require. So why is that word mercy so important? It's because If you're a Christian, the gospel should liberate you from evil speaking. Why? Because if you know the gospel, you know and understand how much grace you have received, and for that matter, how much people could say about you that you would deserve. (laughs) When I talk evil about somebody, I'm just identifying the one little thing that I see. If I was to talk the evil about me, it would be an encyclopedia of offenses. I was reading recently of someone who was facing withering criticism. Some figure, I think, in church history, and the people asked him, what, "How are you processing this?" And he said, "About his critics, they don't know the half of it. I'm far worse than what they've said." <laughs> Oh, what what candor and maturity and honesty because we know that's true. We just don't want people to know it. So the question is, why would we speak evil when we've received so much mercy? When we speak this way, it puts us in a position of judgment. And for those who are Christians, we have received the mercy through the blood of Jesus and we ought to be so thankful that God is our judge. Therefore, why in the world do we act as if we're God, speaking in such a way that's so definitive, with so much judgment, when we have received so much mercy? So James says, watch what you say when it comes to evil words. Here's the second thing. Watch what you say when it comes to presumptuous words. The the, the second expression of pride or arrogance here in the text relates to how we talk about, but really how we think about the frailty of our lives. So the the words aren't just the problem, The, the problem really underneath all of this in verses 13 through 17 is how we see life. So James makes this point clear by saying this in verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. So James uses this contemporary illustration, one that we can all relate to, and that is of talking about what we're gonna do. Today or tomorrow, we're gonna go in such a town, spend a year there, we're gonna make a trade and make some profit using a business or marketplace metaphor. This is is how life works. In order to make a profit, you need to look ahead, plan, offer something that somebody else needs that they would want to purchase and buy. So you've got to evaluate the situation, create something that somebody wants, get ahead of that, and then work that plan. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong. That's how life works. You anticipate the needs around you and you adjust to them. But the problem is, is living as if life doesn't change overnight. When I was preparing this message, I was thinking of a conversation I had with a friend in February, we're having lunch, and we're just talking about what's going on in the world and everything else, and he said, you know, I'm really concerned about what's happening over in Wuhan. That virus and lockdown things got me nervous. And I said, really? He said, yeah. Well, like a month later, I called him and said, hey, you got any stock picks? Because that was a pretty good, pretty insightful thought, right? It's just amazing. One thing the global pandemic has taught us as to how quickly life can change overnight. And that's why James says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He reminds us that it's possible for us to talk as if life isn't uncertain, he rebukes his readers here for the arrogance of living as if there's no uncertainty in the mix. And their presumptuous words are just really a reflection of their self-deception that can often characterize our lives. We, we slander people as if we're above the law, but with presumptuous words we talk as if we're sovereign. As if we're in control. I'm going to do this and that, my business unit's going to do this, we're going to have this, or... Maybe you had this idea of what your life was going to be. It's going to be like this and this and this. I'm going to do this, that, and this, that, that. And never did it cross your mind that in a minute, boom, God could change everything. And you may know that intellectually, but the way that you rolled for so many years was living as if everything was kind of in your control. To make this even more specific, James reminds us the nature of our lives. He says, what is your life? for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James is saying here, not only are we limited in our ability to predict and understand the future, but our lives are far more temporary than actually we care to admit. And so he uses this image of a mist. Now, you can read that in the Bible, but I want you to see it a little differently. So I brought an illustration with some air freshener this is Glade has thank you on it. And uh, this has up to seven hours of freshness, just so you know. So you ready? Here's, here's your life. See it again? Feeling pretty good about your business, your portfolio, your 401K, your plan? thinking, man, I'm killing it at work. I'm really successful. Go to a cemetery. Walk around and see the tombstones. They have a date that you're born, and they have a date that people have died. And in between the two is a dash. That's your life. And the challenge is, is, that we can begin to live as if the missed thing isn't true. Not realizing that everything can change immediately, just in an instant. Again, that's just something that I think will be one of, at least for me, I trust for you, the big takeaways of the last 16 months or so. Even before 2020, I didn't even know what a global pandemic was. When the shutdown happened and global pandemic was a part of our language, I was like, I don't even know what this is. So I started watching documentaries about global pandemics and Spanish flu. I actually went on Netflix and found all kinds of movies about pandemics and kind of did a little binge thing on the pandemic genre. And when I was watching them, I was like, this stuff actually happens. Like I'm living in this. Whereas before I saw like a a zombie apocalypse movie or something, that's never gonna happen. That's crazy. But here I am, I'm living in this and I didn't have a category that those things sort of happen and here I am in the middle of it. And it's just a good reminder of how quickly life can change. It causes us to feel our humanity and to be reminded of how vulnerable we really are. You know you don't like to be vulnerable, right? We'd rather have certainty. The markets would rather have certainty. Your business unit would rather have certainty. But the fact of the matter is, is life is really vulnerable And when we feel that vulnerability, you know what we do, we get frustrated, we get angry, or some over plan and think and analyze. But what happens is that James shows us here that our lives need to be seen through a particular lens and a lens that is conditioned on God's sovereign control. That's why he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, please, this, this is more than just something you have to add onto every sentence. Please don't do that. That's really annoying. After church, like, we're gonna go to Kadioba for lunch today, Lord willing. Don't do that. Okay? <laughs> Unless you're living your life continually without any reference point to Lord willing. We'll give you some grace for a little while to maybe orient yourself to get that into your vocabulary. But there's some people who just say it over and over and over as if it's some kind of spiritual badge. But for some of us, we may need to add Lord willing a little more into our vocabulary because some of us are living as if we're in control when the fact of the matter is we're not. In fact, I wonder if it wouldn't be a little helpful for us to maybe normalize not being in control. Imagine if you came on Sunday and somebody said, how you doing? And you said, my life's totally out of control. And someone said, praise God. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is, is everyone's life is absolutely out of control. We just don't know it. James concludes, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James returns here to the main issue at hand, which is living arrogantly. Here's the challenge. We know we shouldn't speak evil things. We know that our lives can change in an instant, but what happens is that we begin to live our lives and we begin to talk as if we're stronger and more powerful than what we really are, and James here is concerned about a pattern of simply forgetting who you are and who li- in light of who God is. Evil words and presumptuous words come from the same core issue, which is this, a wrong understanding of who you are. So how does the gospel speak into this? If you're a Christian, let me help you understand how the gospel directly speaks into this very issue. If you're not yet a Christian, this is, this is how the good news of Jesus actually affects how we would think about our words and the future. So how does the gospel speak into this? First, the gospel tells us about our rightful place in the created order. The Bible very helpfully reminds us that God is sovereign. He's the holy ruler over everything. It reminds us that everything that we have in life is conditioned upon a God who loves us, who cares for us, but a God who is in control. And so the gospel first humbles us by showing us who we really are. The Bible tells us, God is holy. I'm not. I'm not holy. I'm not in charge. I'm not sovereign. I can't fix this. God is holy, I'm not, what's my hope? Jesus saves, Christ is my life. And I see life through that lens. Secondly, the gospel informs us about the grace of God's, about the gift of God's grace, rather, and then it transforms us. So it tells us about God's grace and then transforms us by that grace. And so because of Jesus, we receive mercy and everything that we have is because of the gift that God has given us. So nothing that we have is earned. Nothing we have is deserved. That mind that you have Christian, that you can understand how to anticipate things and make really good decisions, or you're super talented or gifted in some area. You need to know all of that is because of the kindness of God. And if for a moment he caused little synapses in your brain to misfire, your tongue could no longer speak, your brain wouldn't even think anymore. It is only by the mercy of God that you can do anything. I'm thankful I don't know a lot about how my body works because I might be tripped out a little bit, like that's all that it takes to knock me off. (laughs) The gospel graces us by giving us what we don't deserve. First, the mercy of Christ, but then everything that we have is a gift from God. And third then, in light of all this, then the gospel changes how we live. Here's why. Because if we have received the mercy and grace of God, then it affects how we view ourselves, other people, and the future. The gospel changes how we talk about others and how we talk about the future because we see everything through the lens of, God, you're supreme, you rescued me from myself. Jesus, without you, I'm nothing, and everything about my life now revolves around who you are. And when you see the world like that, it changes, it should, how you talk about others and also about the future. You see, this is what makes the cross so incredibly powerful. It has the power to rescue you from yourself and to transform what you say about other people and about what you're gonna do tomorrow. James says, be careful what you say by looking at the cross. Father in heaven, we pray that you would allow this text to live with us in the next week because we're going to need it. We're going to come across challenging circumstances and difficult people and hard issues that are going to tempt us to go to places with our words or with our thinking that are not right. And so for those who know you as Lord and Savior, would you right now help us to apply this text in advance and to load it up so that we'll be ready when difficulties come. Lord, some people in this room have experienced a tumultuous number of months, and you don't have to convince them they're not in control. They feel it. Would you pour out mercy and grace upon them, and thank you for helping them to see what was true all along. And now, friends, while we're just in this quiet moment of prayer, before I give you a benediction, could you just take a moment and could you just think of this? Who's the one or two or maybe more people in your life that you really struggle with speaking evil about? Could you just get them in your mind right now? And could you just see them through the lens of God's grace? Could you think of what you know about them versus what you know about you? And even now, could you just pray blessing and grace over them? What about some of you who are in the middle of planning for your future or thinking about big things or um, trying to figure out what tomorrow will bring? Can can you just put a parenthesis around that and just say, Lord, this belongs to you? Could you just, even now, just remind your own heart God's in control. I'm not. So, Lord, would you help us? Because we All have stories, all have challenges, all have pains, and we need your help to apply this word to our lives. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.